Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Sunday School, and we are going to kind of be heading back into our cultural series uh, right now. If you have a Bible, uh, turn with us to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19. We've mentioned this text a few weeks ago, and uh, I want to go back and, and mention it again to keep it fresh on our mind. This is going to be… We, we covered the issue of abortion for a few weeks, and now we are on our third week on the issue of transgenderism. Matthew, chapter 19. Greg, would you open us in prayer, and then we can jump in? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your abundant, overwhelming grace, Lord, by which you've saved us and called us to a holy calling, God, that we might be your people, God, that we might have the assurance of the forgiveness of our sins, of adoption as your children, of a righteousness that is completely alien to us, that's all in the Lord Jesus um, Lord, and we know that you've given us your Holy Spirit to seal us for the day of redemption, as Paul says, and also, Lord, to guide us and sanctify us uh, in the truth, and that truth that he uses is your word. And so, God, in everything that we say and everything that we uh, discuss uh, for these few moments, Lord, help us be grounded in your word, faithful to your word, help us make the right application, Lord, so that we can best live for our Savior Lord, in a, in a culture that is increasingly hostile to uh, the very idea of, of truth. Um, so, Lord, just be with us in these few moments in a special way, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Papa Fred, would you read for us Matthew 19, uh, verses 4 through 6? Yes, sir. The word of the Lord. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So I just want to remind everybody, just basic idea here, <clears throat> Jesus is affirming what Genesis says, which is no surprise if we know who Jesus is and what he believes. He's affirming what Genesis 1 and 2 teaches about man made in God's image as male and female. If you look again at verse 4, let me just reread it. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So Jesus says, in the beginning, God made them male and female. And we talked about how in modern terminology, we speak about uh, the chromosomes, right? You have XX for female and XY for male. And I had not mentioned this yet, and it's, it's, a, big, it's a big issue, and, and, and uh, I don't know if I have the uh, ability to go into this too far, but um, sometimes people will mention uh, children with genetic defects who are born intersex, or they're born with a mixture of the, of the genetic information. I'm not an expert on this topic, but from what I've read, you have something called, uh, for instance, Klinefelter syndrome, which is when there's an extra X chromosome in a boy, so you have X, it's XXY. It's also called, I think, uh, 47 something or other. So instead of having 46 chromosomes, uh, 23 plus 23, 23 from the mother, 23 from the father, together you have, you're supposed to have 46. This per individual has 47, and it's XXY, which is called Klinefelter syndrome. There are other kinds of combinations like that. You also have XXX, which is a woman born with an extra X chromosome. 
Um, in, in many instances, these things can be worked through, but I, I grant you that there, is, there, there are some very difficult cases. So if you kind of read through the material, there, there's some difficult situations. Here's what we cannot do, and this is something I think Greg has mentioned in past weeks. We cannot take genetic abnormalities that come as a result of the fall in a broken world that has been uh, cursed under judgment. We cannot take uh, exceptional situations where, say, one in 4,000 or one in 3,000 children is born this way and then work backwards and make a rule that says, if you're born XY, you can become a… If you're born XY would be a man, you can become a woman, or you're born XX, you can become uh, a man. The danger today is that people take these extreme sad and confusing and difficult cases that are on the, the margins, part of the fallen world, and then try to work backwards to change the basic principle. And that is something we cannot allow. And so be, be very wary in these debates of people taking extremely exceptional scenarios that are very difficult, and we, we, you know, we stand with those people, we, we, work, we weep with those people that go through those situations, we want to work with them and help them in whatever way is possible, but don't let the rare exceptions then overturn the clear biblical rule. And, and I just want to, I want to say something, this is pretty amazing. I, this, I think this first really got pointed out to me by uh, Peter Williams, who's in, in Tyndale House, uh, and he's a, a great New Testament scholar. Peter Williams pointed this out online, I saw this, and I, I've, I haven't stopped thinking about it. It just kind of sat in the back of my mind. So in Matthew 19, the chapter begins, Jesus affirms God made them in the beginning, male and female, right? And then, just amazing to me, if you skip down to verse 12, he's talking about the gift of singleness, the disciples say in verse 10, you know, if, if divorce laws are so strict, Jesus, they say, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to even marry in the first place, they seem to be saying. Verse 11, but Jesus said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it has been given, referring to the gift of singleness. Verse 12, now th this verse is amazing. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Now, just let me work backwards. The one who has made himself a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom is not literal. It's a metaphorical eunuch. In other words, this is a person who, is, who has chosen a single life for the sake of God's kingdom. Jesus himself had chosen a single life. Paul had chosen the single life. He had, quote, metaphorically made himself a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. He had chosen not marriage for the sake of the kingdom. Then you work backwards to the next example. There are those who have been made eunuchs by the hands of men. That would refer to a literal eunuch, someone who has gone through that physical process and, and that has happened to that individual. And you can think of the Ethiopian eunuch in, in Acts 8 who had, been, who had literally physically become a eunuch. But now let's work back to the, the first one. This is amazing. This is in, Jesus said this 2,000 years ago. There are eunuchs who have been so from birth. Does Jesus know about the rare fallen condition of man that some people are born with genetic abnormalities that cause even the reproductive organs not to fully form, and for there to be real issues for a rare group of individuals? Yes. Does that rule out verses 4 to 6 that God made them as a general principle in the beginning, male and female? No. You see, it's amazing that Jesus at the beginning is affirming everything Genesis says. You're either made male or female, but He grants that there are rare conditions where a child is born without fully formed reproductive organs, uh, and, and in that case, He doesn't dehumanize them. He doesn't, he doesn't act like that doesn't exist, but that doesn't get rid of the principle that God has made us male and female. So, th thoughts just on that general idea? I had not… Oh, go ahead. No, you go. I was going to say, I had not seen that before. That's a really amazing insight. Uh, Peter Williams there, Jesus recognizing that. Um, and yeah, it, it only further serves to show that we don't want to base a whole policy, a whole emphasis on rare exceptions. Like that is the most dangerous way to go. Um, the, the pattern that God set up is, is the pattern that is going to be normal for the, 
overwhelming majority of people, and there's only a few exceptions. One, if you're born that way. Two, if someone physically made you that way. And three, if you choose to forego the normal relationship of marriage to focus on the Lord. Like that, that's, yeah, I, I don't really have anything to add other than just say that's, I had not seen that, but that's, that's actually very helpful. Yeah, and I, let me just add one other thing. Uh, this is, again, based on what I've read, I'm sure other people know this better than I do, but uh, here, here's the, the, the first kind of initial conclusion I can make about individuals with, say, uh, XXY, Kleinfelter syndrome. The, the general consensus is the conclusion in this tragic and difficult situation in our fallen world is that when the Y chromosome is present, the child is a boy, even if there is by genetic defect an additional X chromosome present. And so, I know th- those, are, those are difficult situations, and I'm not the person to talk to about all the genetic a- aspect of that, but generally speaking, when the Y chromosome is present, you've got a boy, and if it's three Xs in that case, then you've got a girl, even if there are going to be some, some physical de- deformities that come with that. And it's, it's a sad and tragic reality uh, that we don't want to ignore, but we don't also want to change clear principle because of, and Jesus doesn't do that either. Mm-hmm. Papa friend. Well, this is amazing, like Greg pointed out. I mean, here's the creator of the universe saying, revealing to us a mystery that I'm certainly the people in, in that age couldn't understand, and, and I can't understand it either, but he's saying it, it is so. Not everyone, uh, for only those whom is, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth and eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. He kind of walks through the whole thing. So uh, what a great analogy to use, because there's always somebody that's going to bring up that 1% or that uh, minority that is not a male or clearly a male or a female as defined by uh, chapter 19. And tell me, often the argument is, well, they didn't know about this back in the biblical times, but now we've advanced and so we can change what the Bible says. But did Jesus know about this back then? Yeah. In fact, Peter Williams said, I don't, Peter Williams says, he was asking online, does anyone know of an earlier quote from anyone describing this condition? Like Jesus is one of the earliest people we have on record describing this. There, there probably are others, but mm-hmm. Jesus is, I mean, that's 2,000 years ago to, to, to make that comment. It's pretty remarkable to have that in, in written form. And, and, and so everything else that we're talking about in this, in this forum or have talked about, homosexuality, uh, divorce, abortion, all, this, all these things, issues are all covered really with this boilerplate here, this blueprint for man and woman uh, as designed by God. You can go back to Genesis 1 and 2 as well mm-hmm. to repeat the same thing. So, another, uh, Go ahead, Greg. Well, I was going to say, like, going back to this, like, Jesus affirms God's design of what's, you know, technically called the gender binary. And that's like a scary, you know, it's often in scare quotes, you believe in a gender binary, like you don't believe in gender fluidity. People can be fluxing in and out of different genders and all that, depending on how they feel, what they think. Um, you know, we talk about a biblical worldview. I mean, we've mentioned this before, but it's something we have to come back against. The, what God set up in Scripture is the way we are to think about it. Any deviation from Scripture is sinful. I mean, on this issue, we have to see that. It's wrong, it's sinful, and it's only going to lead to, to pain, misery, disruption, chaos, which is exactly what we are seeing in our society today. And we, we have to pray, you know, we've talked a lot about we want to make sure we're being gracious, we want to make sure that we're, you know, being as kind as we can be, but we also need to make sure that we don't feel bad for what the Bible says. Because it's, remember, the Bible is God's word and God is speaking through this. And so this is God himself saying, this is how I made it. 
Um, and I remember I heard, heard a pastor one time talk about, um, and this was a long time ago back in college, like you almost, you know, almost feel like I've got to apologize for the Bible because I know that's offensive and I, I, I want to be very... It's like we don't need to apologize for the Bible. We just don't. And when God affirms it, when God says this is how it is, I mean, we, we need to be as clear as we can be. And if you can be as gracious as you want, as kind as you want, as humble as you can be, and all you have to do is just speak these words and people are going to get upset. Why? Because it's not you. It's the truth of God that is working on them and they will either be softened to the point where they will maybe start reconsidering their error or they're going to get angry. I mean, I think we talked about this in John 3. You know, Jesus says, you know, men love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. And so I know we've mentioned this before, but I think it needs to be said again, especially like thing. There are two genders based on biological sex. Your gender corresponds to what you are biologically. Um, you can be as nice as you're going to be, but and if people get mad, that doesn't mean you did anything wrong necessarily. Maybe you actually did exactly what God wanted you to do, and you're speaking the truth is having an effect, but it's not leading to, oh, let's have a, more, a greater discussion. Let's, you know, instead they get mad. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians? We are an aroma of Christ to some, an aroma of life leading to life, the other an aroma of death. That means to some people, this truth that we see is precious, beautiful, and wonderful. It's going to smell like a corpse to them. And so we shouldn't be surprised when people react like, whoa, what are you talking about? That's awful. Maybe it's not because we did something wrong. Maybe it's just because they're not open to the truth. Now, that's a great point. And we, we mentioned a few weeks ago the difference between biological sex and what is now being called brain sex, the way that you feel or think about yourself inwardly. And just, just to give this illustration, and, and I, I've mentioned this before, Carl Truman has written two books. One is the big one, one is the more reader-friendly version, but they're the same kind of argument. One is called, the, the big one's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And then the one he wrote as a, kind of a sequel or summary is Strange New World. And we have some copies of this maybe still available in the book group. They may be gone. I don't know. We could order some more. But in, in these, uh, th- these two books, Truman is basically making this point. He wrote the whole thing to try to make sense out of especially the transgender movement. So he's trying to figure out historically how do we get to this moment. And this is the illustration he used that I just, I, I think it's a great point. Uh, he said that 50 years ago, if a, if a teenage, uh, say a biological teenage boy went to a, like a psych- psychologist or something 50 years ago and the boy said, I have feelings that I am female or I have feminine feelings about myself. I think of myself as a girl. I want to wear girls' clothing and those kinds of things. Uh, everybody would agree, parents and the psychologist would agree that there's a problem here. He said 50 years ago, the psychologist would say, the problem is with your thinking, your, your feeling. And we need to try to do some, some, some kind of therapy to kind of get your th- thinking and feeling back in line with the reality of who you are biologically. That's uh, common sense. That's what would, that's what would have been almost universally everyone would have said 50 years ago. And that's what they would have said for the last several thousand years. That would have been what everyone has basically said. Well, now in just a, a generation, when that same boy shows up to the psychologist and says, hey, uh, I'm having feelings of being a girl. I like playing with dolls. I, like to, I want to wear dresses. I like play, you know, hanging out with my sister's friends. I don't like the boys and all that kind of stuff. Well, then immediately the psychologist says, we have a problem. Parents agree, we got a problem. And now the psychologist says the problem is with your body. The problem is not with your feelings. The problem is with your biology. And now we need to undergo hormonal treatments, uh, medical surgery. We need to do whatever we can with our new technologies to try to 
uh, minimize the masculine characteristics and to maximize the so-called feminine character traits and do that through uh, technology and hormonal treatment. Well, Carl Truman said the reason he wrote this book, and they gave him, I think, a year to off mm-hmm. from regular work. To just, he worked on it full-time for a solid year. To, it's, a, it's a really important work. I mean, it's a really big deal, this book, these two books. But Truman said, he said, I, that was the question he had to get an answer to. How, that is an amazing different approach, like a completely different approach. One is the problem is your feeling, make it in line with your biology. Now the problem is your biology, put it in line with your feeling. He said, what happened? And he, he calls it the rise and triumph of the modern self. And his basic argument would be uh, that, I mean, this is a really short version of a much more complex argument, but it's basically his argument is this. You had uh, people like Jean-Jacques Rousseau and the Romantics who argued that the inward life is the most important life. You look, at, you look within, you feel things, your feelings are the, like the romantics, your feelings are so important, that's, that's the essence of who you are, and over time that was transformed. And when you get through like just 1800s, you go through Darwin, who makes us feel satisfied without God for how we got here, yeah, that's the idea, and then you move through Karl Marx, where you think of everyone in terms of oppressor and oppressed groups, right? And then you, you think of Sigmund Freud, Freud's I mean, almost all his theories have been debunked today by everybody, but his, his legacy, his horrific legacy, really, is that he thought that the most important thing about you was your feelings, not any feelings, your sexual feelings. As you know about Freud, the, the, your, your sexual inward feeling is like what explains who you are. It's like the most significant part of who you are. Okay, when you put all those thinkers together, century after century, here's what you get. The most important thing about me is not outside of me, it's inside of me. It doesn't come from God. Darwin said, I don't need that. I can explain the world around me based on my own terms. I look within to find meaning and purpose. And when I look within, I look for my feelings. And my feelings, the most important feelings are sexual in nature. And when I look within and find the sexual feelings within myself that are most fundamental to who I think I am, I have to then live them out against whatever around me is telling me otherwise. So if my church is saying don't do that, then I'm a hero to stand against my church and be so-called persecuted, right, from Christians. So I stand against my church. I stand against the Bible that's coming from outside of me to tell me what to do. I stand against any notion of God or what my youth pastor says or what the culture is saying. I'm going to stand true to myself, my inward sense of self, my inward sexual desires. I'm going to be true to that even if I lose friends, even if my parents are upset with me, even if my church doesn't like what I'm doing, even if it disagrees with Scripture because I'm no longer going to be inauthentic. The idea of an authentic person is that you are being true to who you are inwardly. And the idea of submitting your inward desires to a transcendent God sounds like being a hypocrite because you're not actually being who you truly are deep down in your heart. That's the argument. That's why every Disney movie is about a character who goes against what their family says, goes against what their culture says, goes against what everyone around them expects of them. They break all the cultural standards and all the expectations of a woman or all the expectations of a boy or whatever, and you break all that, and what are you? You're true to you following your heart wherever it goes. And at the end of the movie, that's the hero. And who are the villains? The villains are people like you and I holding a Bible saying, but God has something better here. We should submit our desires to Him. We should take up our cross and follow Him. We should follow. God has designed us. And when we submit to Him, it is truly becoming our true self. You know, our, I love this quote. Our, most, our truest self is our most obedient self because God made us with a purpose. And when I submit my sinful desires to His holy desires, I am not becoming less myself. 
I'm not becoming a hypocrite, not being true to my heart. I'm being true to who God designed me to be against my sinful impulses. And guess what? At the end of the day, I become truly me, the me God designed me to be, which is the most holy version of me that there can be. That's, that's who I'm supposed to be, the most God-glorifying version of me. So just reflections on this whole idea. Well, he very carefully defines who we're supposed to be in the words we just read from Matthew 19. And you can go back to Genesis 1 and 2. So when we try to violate that, uh, you know, we, we've got a problem. Um, Greg mentioned, uh, and, and I'm not going to get into this, but th- this is a book called Slouching Towards Gomorrah. Most of you probably have not heard this, but uh, this was written by Judge Robert Bork, who's now deceased, a Supreme Court nominee who was very conservative and was um, uh, not chosen because of his conservative stance. But he wrote this book um, because of a crisis he perceived at the end of the millennium. He wrote this in, in, uh, towards the end of the century. Where the rise of the modern liberalism, which stresses the dual forces of radical egalitarianism uh, and radical individualism, I want to read this, the drastic reduction of limits to personal gratification. So there's, you know, in the, in the past we had limits. The books, this book says we have limits. There's limits on how we behave and how we treat one another and, and how we react and, 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 and pray and, and worship and seek God and, and that type of thing. Uh, Bork says we've, we've ousted that. We've ousted those limits. We've ousted we want individualism. And we want a radical egalitarianism, which is an enemy of every issue that we're studying today. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, I think there were some voices. Even we mentioned Alexander Solzhenitsyn mm-hmm. about the Gulag Archipelago, warning about the evils of Marxism and communism. And, and this guy, uh, you know, there have been individuals that have warned a number of years back. But uh, we, as the church, have to stand fast on this, on this book. I think, too, you know, you talked about nothing external. Like, I think it leads into the, the video that we may, we may look at, that it is so common today to, to say there's no such thing as absolute truth. There's no objective, factual reality out there. Um, it's all about your interpretation of things. It's not that things are what they are, regardless of what you think, regardless of how you feel. Like that whole way of thinking um, has just been rejected outright. And I, I, I'm going to butcher this. I'm going to mention G.K. Chesterton, who had some not good things to say and had some good things to say. But writing a um, hundred years ago. Writing a hundred years ago, he saw the trajectory of where some of this stuff was going. And, you know, we've mentioned how modern math, you know, we don't even want to say two plus two equals four anymore. Like that's, you're, you're a, what, a white oppressor and all kinds of qualifications if you believe two plus two equals four. Like you're forcing your opinion and your perspective and your whatever on people um, because you say that's absolutely true and it can't be something else. Chesterton made a quote to um, something to the effect where he ended by saying, we're going to produce a generation of people too modest to believe in the multiplication table. And he wrote that a hundred years ago Mm. because he saw where these things were going. Um, And one of the most important things as believers that we can keep in mind 
is that because God exists and because God has spoken, there is real, verifiable, unchanging facts that does not change based on the cultural opinion, does not change based on the whims or the desires or the feelings of men and women. And at root, the whole transgender thing is an assault on God and on the fact that God created a world that, that has facts in it. Um, and so when we do away with objective truth, objective reality, not subjective, which is how we feel, but objective, which is, was it, is what it is regardless of how we feel, when we do away with objective reality, the, the absurdities that we see today is what you get. Um, and the video, I, I, are we going to yeah, yeah. watch? Because like some of you may have seen this. I remember I'd seen this a long time ago and then Mark, Mark sent this to us. Um, and and if, if we can even have any common sense, we know that some things are inherently contradictory. Something can't be both black and white at the same time. It can't be both true and false. Like there are things that just are what they are, but we are in a generation that is increasingly uh, skeptical of any way of thinking like that. And the video we're going to watch um, here in just a sec, I think is going to show that, the, absurd, the absurdity to which we've gone. And j- just before I show it, <clears throat> just two, two illustrations to go alongside the video that we're about to watch. And some of you, I'm sure, have seen it. It came out in 2016. Um, it's just interviewing college students about these things a few years ago. A couple of illustrations. The, if the inner feeling about your gender is your gender, and your biology is irrelevant, if that's true, and I think I mentioned this before, why wouldn't that be true in other situations? So here's an example. If, uh, and I know these are touchy subjects, but if, if say, a woman had anorexia, if her, her biological truth is that she's dangerously thin. That's the biological truth. But her self-perception is extremely skewed. She, she does not see herself accurately. She thinks she, 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 she is the exact opposite of what she is physically, right? And so if she says, listen, I feel this certain way, and you say, but biologically, that's not true of you. But she says, but I feel this way. I feel like I, I, I am unhealthy, overweight, whatever it may be. Well, you, you would never, as an act of love, affirm her feelings over the biological truth. You'd destroy her. It's the most hateful thing you could do is to say, I understand you feel that way and I don't want to offend your feelings, so you're right. That's true of you. You should lose way more weight and just make yourself just rot away, like just, just deteriorate. Well, in, in those ca- we know in those cases an act of love is to say, I'm going to contradict your feelings and I'm going to tell you what's true of you biologically to, in order to literally save your life physically. Like, it is an act of love. Now, we say it with tone of, we say it with tears, we say it with love, we say it with compassion, we don't shout it at them, but we say it truthfully. And, and I would say in, the sim- in a similar kind of way, it, when we are in the workplace, and we'll get to this more in a minute, but when, when I'm in the workplace, if someone were to asking me in the workplace to affirm someone's anorexic beliefs, I wouldn't do it because I would be lying about them. And if I'm in the workplace and someone's asked me to affirm someone's transgender beliefs by changing their pronouns, I'm not going to do it because I'm not going to lie about them. You, you understand? Th- th- these things are not totally different. And the, one other example would be Rachel Dolezal, who I mentioned, and I have a clip, but I won't show it right now. She, she made the news a few years ago. Remember, she was leading an African-American group claiming to be African-American, and it came out that she was a, a picture of her when she's a child. She is a very light-skinned, freckle-faced, red-headed girl when she's like 17. And they thought, oh, you've kind of changed your look a little bit. You look a little different, and like you've done your hair and your makeup in such a way, you look like a darker complexion. But it came out that she was lying, that she was not actually African-American. And guess what? Everyone got mad at her. Rightfully so, right? She, she was not an African-American, but she was masquerading and saying she was one. Well, my question is, why did, I mean, they had her on the, the, the Good Morning America or the Today Show, and they just like skewered her. They're just like, what are you doing? Like, this is wrong. Like, this is not right. Well, 
Do you see a double standard going on here? Why is it when it comes to certain things, my feelings about myself don't matter at all? But biology is what matters. You're white. Stop acting like you're not, right? But when it comes to my gender, I can just switch it. Uh, There are deep contradictions, I think, in our system. So let let me, uh, this video is about four minutes long. There's been a lot of talk about identity lately, but how far does it go? And is it possible to be wrong? We went to the University of Washington to find out. Are you aware of the debate happening in Washington State around um, the ability to access bathrooms, locker rooms, spas based on gender identity and gender expression? I I think people should be able to have access to the facility. I think uh, bathrooms could and potentially should be gender neutral because there doesn't need to be a classification for differences. I think people definitely should have the ability to go into whichever locker room they want. Uh, I feel like at least public universities should do their best to accommodate for those who do not have a specific uh, gender identity. You know, whether you identify as male or female and whether your sex at birth is matching to that, you should be able to utilize the resources. So if I told you that I was a woman, what would your response be? Good for you. Okay. Like, (laughs) yeah. Nice to meet you. I'll be like, what? <laughs> really? I don't have a problem with it. I'd ask you how you came to that conclusion. If I told you that I was Chinese, what would your response be? I mean, I might be a little surprised, but I'd say, good for you. Like, yeah, be who you are. <laughs> I would maybe think you had some Chinese ancestor. I would ask you how you similarly came to that conclusion and why you came to that conclusion. Um, I would have a lot of questions. Just because on the outside, I would assume that you're a white man. If I told you that I was seven years old, what would your response be? Um, I wouldn't believe... <laughs> this is the moment when your worldview starts to come back to haunt you right there. Like, um, I... Oh, boy. That immediately? Uh, I probably wouldn't believe it, but I mean... I, it wouldn't really bother me that much to go out of my way and tell you no, you're wrong. I'd just be like, oh, okay, he wants to say he's seven years old. If you feel seven at heart, then, <laughs> then so be it. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> so if I wanted to enroll in a first grade class, do you think I should be allowed to? Uh, probably not, I guess. I mean, unless you haven't completed first grade up to this point and for some reason need to do that now. If that's where you feel, like, mentally you should be, then I feel like there are communities that would accept you for that. I would say so long as you're not hindering society and you're not causing harm to other people, I feel like that should be an okay thing. If I told you I'm six feet, five inches, what would you say? That I would question. Why? (laughs) Because you're not. (laughs) No, I don't think you're six feet. If you truly believed you're 6'5", I don't think it's harmful. I think it's fine if you believe that. It doesn't matter to me if you think you're taller than you are. So you'd be willing to tell me I'm wrong? I wouldn't tell you you're wrong. No, but I say that um, I don't think that you are. I I, I just got to stop here. I know we're almost done. But just one thing here is there is this idea that you're... Okay, going back to Carl Truman's book, the goal in our society today is to have an inner psychological sense of well-being about yourself, like a therapeutic happiness, like an inner feeling of goodness about yourself and your self-perception. And so that's why, first of all, the doctrine of sin 
totally doesn't fit with that. Because sin is saying you're wrong, you're in trouble, you're under God's judgment, you need salvation. Very offensive. But what, what they're saying here is, no, you've got to, to love someone, you've got to help their inner psychological well-being and their happiness go up. And the way you do that is by agreeing with and affirming whatever it is they feel. And so that's why these people are so tongue-tied. They don't want to tell him he's not a six-foot-five Chinese woman, <laughs> which he's a five-nine white guy. He clearly is not that. But they don't want to tell him that. They don't want to say it because it, they, everything in them has told them since they've grown up on all these movies and sitcoms and all these uh, social media posts, they've had this overwhelming feeling. To disagree with someone's sense of self is the ultimate act of oppression and harm. And he's exposing that this is ridiculous when you actually try to live it out. So let's finish the, uh, the video here. I wouldn't tell you you're wrong. No, but I say that um, I don't think that you are. I feel like that's not my place as like another human to say someone is wrong or to draw lines or boundaries. No, I mean, I wouldn't just go like, oh, you're wrong. Like, that's wrong to believe in it. Because I mean, again, it doesn't really bother me what you want to think about your height or anything. So I can be a Chinese woman. <laughs> um, sure. But I can't be a six foot five Chinese woman. Yes. If you thoroughly debated me or explained why you felt that you were six foot five, uh, I feel like I would be very open to saying that you were six foot five or Chinese or a woman. It shouldn't be hard to tell a five nine white guy that he's not a six foot five Chinese woman, but clearly it is. Why? What does that say about our culture? And what does that say about our ability to answer the questions that actually are difficult? Greg, reflections on that? Well, it just it illustrates the point that I was saying earlier. Like we're we're too mentally modest to to even speak basic truths. The other part of the Chesterton thing, it finally came to me. He was like, the way it used to be and it should be is that we are to cast doubt on ourselves, but not yeah. on external reality. And what our modern day has done is completely flipped that. The one thing we don't doubt anymore is us, and we doubt everything else That's outside exactly right. of us. And that is the most absurd and dangerous thing that we can do. And here's the other thing, too. Like, we hear that, and we say, how could anybody in their right mind even believe like that and even think that way? It's so inherently self-contradictory. We come back to, and we've mentioned this, Marxism a lot. Um, Marxism is very okay with contradictions. It's in the literature. Like, that's the crazy part. You, like, they, they know that these truths, uh, that these things are inherently contradictory and they don't care. They know it's going to tie people who, like us, up in knots because, like, well, you can't do that and it, it doesn't. And that's what they want. They want. Um, normal, rational society to be utterly confused and like just lost as to what's going on because then they have, they have the advantage. They want us to be confused. They want us to like not know what to do instead of just calling them on their stuff like and calling them on like that. Sorry, that, that just doesn't work. Like you, you can try to flower it up all you want to. And also the transgender movement, homosexual movement, um, in their earlier days as they were trying to set up a lot of the things that we now see in society. And there's literature that they have written, and so this isn't me making this up, they said this in their literature. That What was the after thing? After the Ball? Yeah, After the Ball. Written in the late 80s or something yeah, like that? Yeah, that Vodibachum, a book, and it laid out their strategy on how to get our society to where we are today. 
Um, they talk about no, go, no, go ahead, go ahead. say they talk about speaking in contradictions because they know the effect that's going to have. And while we're all worried and in a, in a tizzy about oh you this that they're getting their stuff in more and more and more and more because they don't care. They don't care if it contradicts. They are so driven by their agenda, their hatred of God, their hatred of truth, their hatred of goodness, their hatred of beauty, that they are going to do whatever they can to have a smokescreen so that we're distracted by the smokescreen and we don't call them on what's really going on. And part, so that book he's referring to, I don't remember the author's names. It's a little tiny book. You can't buy it anymore. I think it costs like $1,000 oh, online. It's incredibly it's, it's, expensive. You can't find it anywhere. It's out of print. But it's called After the Ball, I think is the name. And the argument was two uh, gay activists who were both PhDs, one in like advertising and one in mm-hmm. psychology or something. They teamed up and wrote a book laying out the game plan for how to make homosexuality widely accepted to the LGBT uh, community. And one other thing that they added, which I haven't mentioned yet, that Carl Truman talks about in this book, is he said this, going back to the, Carl, the, the Marxism thing, remember, the whole world was thought of in terms of oppressor and oppressed? Well, that was in terms of like the working man, like the bourgeoisie and the proletariat and all that stuff. Well, this is what, this is what happened. People, were, people stopped thinking in terms of working class and the, you know, the owners of the means of production, all that stuff. It kind of come, doesn't it come back like a, like a haunted nightmare from like high school or college days? You kind of remember hearing about that. So they, they, what, what's happened is that kind of went underground. Marxism, the, the full-blooded Marxism was so, uh, so such a disaster over the last century that it kind of went underground and it came back. But it came back in a kind of what they now call cultural Marxism, which is a little different. And the, what, what, what changed was this. And after the ball, these two guys argue what we've got to do is we've got to take the idea of you've got oppressor and oppressed, you've got victim and victimizer, We've got to find a way to take the category of the oppressed or the victim and tie it somehow to the LGBT community. And so here's what they actually say this in the book. They said, this is the late 1980s. What was the big issue? The AIDS crisis, right? So the AIDS crisis is ravaging the homosexual community. And and they they said, this is one of those moments where if this goes the wrong way, it could discredit our entire movement because it looks so bad for us. So what we're going to do is, here's the two arguments we've got to make people believe. Number one is, you know, you know, homosexuality has nothing whatsoever to do with choice in terms of action and behavior. You've got to think of it as, as you, this is just something that you have, something that you are. You don't have a choice about anything. It's just, it's, it's who you are. And so if we can convince people it's identity, and the new language is, you know, gay is the new black. <laughs> uh, gay is the new black is the new argument. And it's the new civil rights movement. Vody Bakum, who's African-American, said, I can, I can tell you, he said from experience, that, that uh, that's not true. <laughs> Gay is not the new black. But he said, uh, as an African-American man. But he, but he said, the argument was, if we can convince people that homosexuality is an unchangeable part of your identity, then what we can say is that the AIDS crisis is actually something that's victimizing us, and therefore we can play the role of the oppressed in this scenario. That could turn this whole thing to allow us to look sympathetic and therefore lead to more credibility in our culture on, on this regard. And then as we move forward, the argument was, the, the sexual so-called minority groups that can claim oppressive status, like the way, like the, the Stonewall riots in 1969 and how the LGBT community was treated in certain instances. The argument was, we're going to be playing the role of that victim group. And once you combine inner psychological well-being with inward feelings, with your sexual desires, and you can find the sexual desire that's linked to an oppressed group, so-called, or a victim group, so-called, then you have the ultimate cocktail, really, of what this modern self is all about. And once you combine those things together, you can really just steamroll anybody and anything in our society. No one can call that out, right? Like, once you can claim those identity groups. So we need to know what's undergirding some of these thoughts so that we can, we can better understand what's happening. Thoughts on any of that? No, you said that really well. <laughs> yeah, you did. Um, 
but what you know, we we've got a lot of young people in this room. Um, I, I'm hoping if we took a microphone and, and queried you about some of these questions that you might have a different answer. Um, you know, I'm thinking one thing that re really has impressed me is um, we just passed the 500 and some um, anniversary of the Martin Luther's 95 Theses mm. in 1517, actually. And actually, the Diet of Worms was actually last year, the anniversary where he stood and he said, my... I, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand, God help me. And that's where we stand. We're, we're captive to, to the word of God. And the word of God has a blueprint, has a design. And to violate that design is to violate God's law, God's... It, can I jump off yeah. that point? Yeah, sure. So, this is something I keep observing. I, again, I teach like seniors in high school. So what I keep observing every year to some degree or another is I, there's always some students, some more than others, who, I don't know how to quite put this into words, but the, basically you get this sense that they will agree in their brain and out loud that the Bible is true. Like they agree, okay, yeah, yeah, these things are not right. Like transgenderism is not right. Homosexuality is not right. But their emotions have been so catechized by our culture, that their emotions really do sympathize with the wrong, wrong stuff on this. Like, in other words, it's like the only thing they will, they're willing to talk about in class is how Christians have mistreated homosexuals in the past. I grant you that has happened. There have been some horror stories of things that are, that are sinful that the Christians have done and said in the way that they've treated people in the LGBT community. I agree. That's, that's, that, that has happened. But if the only thing you're willing to talk about for more than about 30 seconds is the way Christians have mistreated homosexual uh, people, but you're not willing to talk about how dangerous the ideology of the LGBT system is and the kind of absolute havoc it is wreaking right now in the world, if you, if you can't go there emotionally, then it tells me that you've been so catechized by Disney movies and social media and all these things around you, shows and sitcoms, uh, that, that, that over time it begins to shape the way you receive information, the way you understand story, the way you respond to story, who you sympathize with and who you demonize in a story. Your, your emotions are so trained and discipled by the culture that you, you, it's almost like you get whiplash jumping between the biblical storyline and the cultural narrative. Like, you, you, it's very hard. So students who live in the cultural stream have a very hard time getting into the biblical stream. And that's, this is why, for, for as young as we can, to, to train our children in a biblical narrative that starts with Genesis and goes all the way of who we are as male and female, what marriage is for, what sex is for, what children are for, showing what all these things were designed by God to be, that being a man is good. If you're a man, that's a good thing. If you're a woman, that's a good thing. These are gifts from God that we should not despise. We should live into who God has made us. We should, we should, we should celebrate these things. We should not be ashamed of these things. And then having a church that models that for, for young people, they get to see God's design. We're not perfect, but they get to see God's design. And then when they go out into the culture, they can see the cultural view, and they'll be able to more carefully distinguish, hopefully, these two streams and narratives, and not, uh, we pray, not be as susceptible to buy into uh, to the cultural views. Well, we also see in relation to this, um, it's a common thing in shows today, you know, the villain is the victim. The villain is the victim now. I mean, every, every type of villain is being recast. Well, they're only this way because so-and-so did this to them or they had this experience. And we're being made to sympathize with villains and to be mad at those who oppose them. 
Because you just don't know them well enough. You don't understand what they've been through. You don't understand this. And it's like, look, we can have some pretty tragic backstories. Um, and if somebody has been through that, we want to be as sympathetic as we can be, but evil is still evil. And it doesn't matter what was done to you, what you've been through. If you are doing evil things, there, there has to be a, a something in place to stop you from doing evil and you face appropriate punishments and consequences for your evil. But we're getting to the point now where we don't want to give anything like that. Well, it's not their fault. It's, mm -hmm. you know, that's not really who they are. Well, it still doesn't matter. If you do evil, there are consequences for doing evil. Um, and so, again, what is that doing? It's, it's, change, it's trying to change and shape how we think that we redefine our whole understanding of heroes and villains to where villains are actually the heroes and heroes are actually the villains. It's, it's completely inverting the way we're supposed to think about this. Heroes fight for what's good and they try to protect people and do what's right and villains are the opposite of that. But now it's being completely inverted so that, no, the, the people who are championing what is wrong and desiring what is wrong and, and promoting that, they're the ones who are the heroes and, and you're the villain if you try to say, no, you can't do that and you shouldn't do that. No, that's helpful. So let's, let's, uh, we'll come to a close here. Uh, the last thing I want to say, I remember hearing, uh, I think it was Al Mohler said a long time ago, he said, uh, anyone who, uh, I think he said, anyone north of puberty is a sexual sinner. <laughs> so the, the, the bring this full circle, here's the point. Uh, we don't talk about these things as if we are sinless, right? In regards to sexual sin, who is flawless? Who has never sinned in any way, uh, sexually, in any, in any way in their life? That's, that, we, we're all guilty. So we, we want to be very clear. We, we don't come at this from a position of superiority. Like we, we're the, we, got our, you know, we pulled ourselves up by our morality and we're so great. But there's two things we can say simultaneously. One is, I have been saved from horrible sin in my life. The Lord has forgiven me, changed my life, and there is forgiveness for anyone who will turn and trust Christ no matter what they've done. At the same time, it is not wrong of us to stand and to, you know, signal the, the you know, to, to be the watch, on the watchtower and call and say, there is, this, there is this storm coming that is sweeping away many, many millions in, in, this, in this generation, and we need to know about it, and we need to be prepared for it, and we need to not buy into it. So at the same time, there is free forgiveness for anyone who will come out of that system and trust Christ. And yet that system itself is a, it, it is ultimately a satanic and, and evil system that is, that is going to pull people into destruction. And so we want to say those at the same time. We can be humble about it with an open gospel and at the same time uh, be strongly opposed to the, uh, to the belief system lest it, it sweep away uh, others. Papa friend? Yes, sir. Would you uh, close us in prayer? I'd love to. I'm going to first read uh, from Ephesians 2, uh, a few verses. Uh, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love of which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Father, I think about the, um, the Reformation uh, when I read those verses, justified by faith uh, alone. Uh, crediting the authority of God's word. Uh, the, words that I just read from 
Ephesians and, and elsewhere, uh, for this great movement to restore the gospel to the church. And that was 500 years ago. And, and if there's ever been a time when the gospel needs to be front and center restored uh, to the church, it, it, it's now uh, because of uh, these uh, errant doctrines that have infiltrated our society and our culture and our homes and even our churches sometimes. And, and we need to stand uh, like Luther did and like so many others have done for the last 2,000 years on the word of God alone. And I thank you that I, I believe that we are, we're in a church that, that does preach the word of God and does stand on the word of God. And I would pray that everyone in the hearing of, of our voices would, would, would do the same, would uh, remember that we were dead and yet you made us alive through Christ. So thank you, Lord. I pray for our services. I pray for um, uh, the worship we have this afternoon, that we would glorify you. Uh, I pray for Scott and Liliana and, and little Michael in their, in, their, in their struggle with Liliana's illness. Uh, we ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our only Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. So next week, we will, we're, we're planning to begin talking more about the homosexuality issue more directly. And